And as I've been praying and preparing for this series, I just felt like God's heart right now for our church um, is to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and speak into the issues that, that all of us face, because we all have issues. You look at your neighbor and say, you have issues. Yeah, and I'll look at your other one and say, you have issues too. We, we all have issues, and, and I mean, I, I know we're saying that right now, and it's, it's kind of like, yeah, we do, but, but can we just admit on a very real level that all of us have different issues, circumstances, or situations that we face on a daily basis in our personal lives, in our family, and work, whatever it is, we all have issues. An example would be Katie preached last week, and she told you how a couple of Mondays ago, we didn't talk to each other for a whole day because, you know, we're pastors, but we have issues, and we have things going on. Everyone has issues, whatever they might be, and usually our issues touch the most intimate and personal parts of our lives. And we can often be self-conscious about our issues. We can often try to hide our issues by putting on the going to church face that you put on this morning before you got here. Or before you go to Walmart, you got a Walmart face that you put on before you go to Walmart. Or before you go to the bank, there's, you, you put a mask on before you go in public because we want to hide our issues. And sometimes talking about the issues runs the risk of offending someone. If you were raised like I was, there were certain things you didn't talk about at the table or in mixed company. You didn't talk about religion or politics at the table or with mixed company because you, uh, you, you never knew what you would say or, or how you would make someone uncomfortable. And sometimes talking about the issues can maybe come off as prying or meddling into people's lives. Or we can often uh, even get into this idea that if we start talking about the issues in the church, that we can come off as judgmental that we can come off as condemning to other people. And there's a whole other teaching I could do on that. But, but sometimes this, this hesitancy leads to secrecy and sensitivity about the issues. And we, especially in the church, we never really talk about the issues. And because the church never uses her voice to speak to the issues, the issues go on existing in the back rooms of our lives where they grow and they fester and they can become unmanageable. And it's become common assumption in the church world that church is just a place you go once a week to pump you up and make you feel good. And we've created a culture of shallow church where we don't really deal with real life. We just have shallow relationships. We talk about shallow topics. We don't get to the real heart of the matter. And then nothing ever changes. The preacher gives you three points in a poem every week, but there's no real transformation in your life. There's, there's no real a life change. And we, we enjoy the preacher as long as he entertains us, as long as he doesn't start poking or prodding into our issues. But let me tell you for just a moment what my job description is. As your pastor, it is my job to poke and to prod. It is my job to gently and lovingly talk about the issues with you and in your life. The word pastor is a Greek word and it literally means shepherd. And a shepherd tends to his sheep. A shepherd knows that he must ensure the health and the well-being of his flock, no matter the cost to him or the inconvenience to the flock. It's quiet in here. A shepherd, a good shepherd, doesn't let the sheep wander into dangerous territory. 
Instead, that shepherd prods that sheep, those sheep, to walk in the direction towards shelter and safety and good pasture. Amen? A good shepherd, if he finds that one sheep is wounded, he does what he can to doctor that sheep and and treat that wound, even if it means temporary discomfort to the sheep. Come on. Y'all are quiet. A good shepherd doesn't run for safety when the wolves come. A shepherd gets out in front and he fights to protect his flock. And so as a pastor, it's my job when I see a member or members of the flock wandering in the wrong direction to go and ask the tough questions, to have the hard conversations, to even lovingly and gently prod a little bit to direct him or her back to the right path in the right direction. As a pastor, when you're hurting or when you've been wounded, it is my job not to necessarily make you feel good, but to give you the medicine that you need, even if it stings. The temporary sting brings about eventual healing. And as a pastor, when the wolves of sin and temptation, physical or spiritual enemies come in seeking to ensnare us or attack us or or devour us, it is my job to fight against those things even if you don't want me to. And so as your pastor for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about issues. Issues that I face, that you face, that we face as a church body. And I will give you this disclaimer up front. Not everyone will be happy every Sunday. And that's okay. I promise you, I've asked the Holy Spirit. We prayed before service, the worship team and I, and I said, I want, I want to pray that nothing I say ever comes off as anything less than loving and anything more than loving, that it should just love. I've asked the Holy Spirit to help me to never say anything in this pulpit ever, but especially in this series, that would ever be any other motivation than love for the flock. Amen? Now, your choice is, will you take the sting of the medicine and allow it to heal you, Or would you rather avoid the sting and continue being sick? That's the question. Another question would be, or another point that's not in my notes, you're only as sick as your secrets. And so sometimes it takes drawing the issues out into the light in order to bring healing. And so I want to encourage you, every week we'll have a response time. And you have the choice, I'm going to keep suffering in secret or I'm going to find healing in my church family and my church body that can love me and restore me. Amen? So that's the, those are the ground rules, all right? I will always speak out of love. You have a choice. Will you receive the sting of the medicine to get healed or would you rather continue in sickness? Amen? And all of us have issues. So no one's exempt here. No one's exempt in saying, well, that's not me or what. If, you, if it's not you personally, it might be someone in your family. It might be a loved one. It might be a friend. There, this response time is not necessarily just for you and your issue, but maybe you have a friend you want to intercede for or pray for. All of us are going to participate in this, all right? We follow him? Now to Philemon. We're going to talk this week. Our first topic, I'm starting off easy. It's going to get a little tougher every week. I'm starting off easy. Philemon is a true story that tells us or gives us insight into a true story about how the gospel can restore broken relationships. And now, let's read. If you just uh, would stand with me for just a moment, we're going to read the entire book. It's only a few verses long. It won't take very long at all. We're going to look at this. This is a letter written by Paul to a man named Philemon during the first century. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and the church in your house. 
So the church that's meeting in Philemon's house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sakes, I prefer to appeal to you. He's dealing with an issue here. He's saying, I'm your spiritual father. I can tell you what to do, but I'm asking you. I'm, I'm dealing with something in here. I'm, I'm getting into a personal issue in your life, and I'm appealing to you to do the right thing. And so that verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Everyone say Onesimus. Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. For, formerly, he was useless. Everyone say useless. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful. Everyone say useful. Onesimus was useless, now he is useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve on your behalf during my imprisonment, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. I promise I'm going somewhere with this, all right? Don't get lost. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a servant, but more than a servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart. Confident in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. For at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will graciously be given to you. Verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, would you use this piece of ancient mail postal service type stuff that we're reading? And would you use it to show us some truth about who you are? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. How many of you, just by show of hands, you've, you've never heard a sermon on this book before? Yeah, no one ever preaches this one. It is my favorite book in the New Testament. It's Amos is, is my favorite book in the Old Testament. Philemon is probably my favorite book in the Bible. And not just because it's short, all right? Like, I'm not, I'm not that guy. But it's, it's, it is this fascinating, it is such an interesting piece of Scripture because it has everything in it. When you're reading it, it has a little bit of mystery, trying to deduce what's going on here. It has a little bit of intrigue. There's some drama. And it feels real to me because it's dealing with real people who really lived in history at a certain point of time. And it's dealing with a personal issue between two people. And it's relatable because we have all experienced the pain of broken relationships. 
Every single one of us has experienced that in some way. And in just 25 verses, the Apostle Paul writing this letter in the first century to his spiritual son Philemon, he he manages to paint a beautiful picture of the gospel in just a few short verses. Now, you have to understand a few things that's going on if you really want to know what this book is about. The first thing you need to know is who are the major characters, who are the major people that are involved in this letter. And there's three people that this letter particularly talks about. Number one, there's Paul. He's the one who writes the letter, right? He's the one that we know of. He's the one that's written uh, two-thirds of the New Testament. He's the one that we understand who he is. He's a leader in the, the foremost leader of the early church movement. He wrote the letter, and he writes his letter to a man named Philemon, 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 however you want to say it. And he writes to Phil, and he says, Phil, I, I've got something that I want to talk to you about. So, so this is a piece of literal mail that's been traveling through through the the, uh, the the through land and through through passages to get to this person, and the subject of the letter is another man named Onesimus. Onesimus is the subject of the letter. So Paul's writing, he's writing to a man named Philemon, and he's writing about a man named Onesimus. Now Philemon or Phil was a wealthy man who lived in the ancient city of Colossae, the same city from the book of Colossians that we looked at a few weeks ago. And at some point, this man, Phil, he was uh, converted from Greek paganism to become a Christian. Remember, the book of Colossians was all about these new Christians who had come to faith and was following Jesus. And, And so at some point, Phil heard the good news of Jesus Christ from the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, as he was setting up churches and sending people out, uh, Philemon, he had become a follower of Jesus. And it's apparent that Philemon was at least the host of the church. They met in his home. They met in his household. He was probably some sort of pastor or leader in this early church. And we know from the, from the introduction to the letter that Paul recognizes Philemon as a good man, as a man of faith, as a man who loves God, a man who is, who is uh, righteous, who, who is doing his best to lead his family and his community to follow Christ. Christ. But there's something about this fill that maybe if in our 21st century thinking is hard for us to understand. Phil was a slave owner. He owned slaves. And before we can go any further, you have to kind of take off your 21st century goggles, as it were, to look at Phil and put on your first century and understand what's really happening when we look at him on his own terms and what's really going on in his culture. The text we just read is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Phil, one of his disciples, and the subject is one of Phil's slaves named, named Onesimus. Here's the deal. The Bible doesn't tell us why, doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but for some reason, at some point, the slave Onesimus was removed from Philemon's home. We don't know why most people assume that he was a runaway slave that he had escaped slavery to find freedom. But it's also possible that he was sent away, that there's sort of in the letter a hint that maybe he has done some sort of wrong to his master and he was sent away because possibly he stole something or, or he took something. But what is obvious, though, that at some point Onesimus the slave had so wounded and hurt his master Philemon that the relationship was broken possibly some immoral act on the slave's part, or maybe he stole something. Maybe he hurt his, a family member somehow. We don't know, but it's obvious that there was a wound. 
It's obvious that there was a broken relationship between this man Philemon and his slave Onesimus. And so Onesimus is now living a life as a vagabond. He's, he's escaped. He's traipsing through Asia and Europe, trying to get back on his own two feet, trying to exist. And just by coincidence, he happens to meet Paul, the apostle, while Paul is in prison in Rome awaiting execution. Paul is on something like house arrest. He's allowed to send and receive mail. He's allowed to send and, re- and or receive visitors and have people around him. But he is constantly under occupation and under observation by Roman soldiers as he wait, awaits a trial with the Roman emperor. And so Onesimus, the runaway slave, leaves his home in Colossae and ends up in Rome and ends up meeting the apostle Paul. And here's the gospel of Jesus for the first time. And it's interesting, he ends up sitting in the exact same position as the master he ran away from had been in years before, sitting at the feet of the Apostle Paul, hearing the gospel, hearing the story of Jesus. And so as he sits at the feet of this man, Paul, he has a change of heart. He becomes a Christian. He begins a, this journey of walking with Jesus. And he becomes a follower of Jesus. And he evidently spent some time with Paul being discipled in the faith, serving Paul, helping him in his arrest and in, in his imprisonment and serving him and learning the gospel and learning how to walk with Jesus. But there comes a point where Paul notices that it's time for this young man to go back home. It's time for him to go back from where he escaped. It's time for him to return to his master, Philemon. Here's the problem. A runaway slave traveling without permission of his owner can face the death penalty. It's Roman law. If you've run away or you're not, you don't have permission to be traveling from your master, you've broken the law, and the, the consequences for breaking that law is death. And a slave who has run away or disobeyed his master is always under the constant fear that I could be killed. And since he's run away, he could go back home and his master be so angry at him that he sentences him to death for disobeying him. So what Paul does is he gives Onesimus a letter to carry. He writes a letter to his spiritual son Philemon and he, he, he pens this note about this young man Onesimus to carry with him. And he's got a 1,200-mile journey from Rome to Colossae, 20 days of traveling by, by on horseback or donkey, or, or, or uh, at some point you have to take a ship across water. And so he, he gets there, and he's carrying this letter, and he has this letter from Paul that explains the whole situation. So I imagine Onesimus, he's run away from this guy, right? He knows that this guy has every right to kill him. And he says, okay, Paul, you're saying I got to go back. I don't really want to. And he's got, he says, I, I, I'm scared. He, Paul gives him a letter, and so he's like, carrying this letter with him wherever he goes so that he at least has some sort of permission to be doing what he's doing. And he's carrying this letter and he's rehearsing the whole way like the prodigal son did in the prodigal story where he's rehearsing before he gets to his father's house. And he's saying, you know, Lord, I've sinned against you. Our father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. You know, he's doing the same kind of thing the prodigal son does. And he's got this letter like, man, I sure hope Paul knows what he's talking about. I sure hope this letter is really going to work because if it doesn't work, I'm going to be sentenced to death. If it doesn't work, they're going to they're going to execute me. And so he's, he's traveling with this letter, and it's an absolutely fascinating letter when you know that backstory. 
Because when Paul is writing, he's saying, Onesimus, this is the letter. You're going to travel 1,200 miles. And when you knock on the door and your old slave master answers the door, don't say anything. Just hand him the letter. Just, just give it to him and it'll explain everything. This letter is literally someone else's mail that we're getting to read 2,000 years later. It's a letter from a spiritual father to a spiritual son dealing with the issue of a broken relationship. After the introduction, the first nine verses, in verse 10, Paul gets to the point, and he says, Philemon, I'm writing you for one reason and one reason only. I'm appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became while I was in prison. Here's what Paul is doing. He's saying, hey, Phil, daddy's got a new baby. He's saying, hey, Phil, if, if you're my son and Onesimus is my son, then that makes you two brothers. If, if I'm his spiritual father and I'm your spiritual father, then you two are related. He's saying, everything has changed since the last time you saw your slave, your servant. Everything has changed. Now your slave Onesimus is also my son, so that makes you brothers. I know that you've been hurt by one another. I know there's plenty of blame to go around. I know that it might be hard to talk about. I know this is a tough conversation, so I know he hurt you. I know he did you wrong. I know he walked out on you. I know he broke the law. I know all of that, but I'm asking you, because of who he is and because of who I am, I'm asking you to receive your former slave back as a brother. Verse 11, he says, he used to be useless, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. This is brilliant because if you didn't know this, I'm getting ready to blow your mind, all right? Do you know what the name Onesimus means? Useful. That's his name. The irony being that a servant who isn't serving is completely useless. Onesimus isn't living up to his name or his calling. But Paul is asking his disciple Philemon to receive the slave now as more than a slave. Useless has now become useful. Useless has grown up and he's living up to his name. And now that the old slave has become a new man, he's worth more to you as a brother than he ever was as a slave. See, we can either treat people the way we think they deserve to be treated for their past sins, or we can choose to go the Jesus way and treat people for the potential that God has hidden inside of them, the calling that he has placed on them, and you can't treat a new man like the old slave. He whom Christ has set free is free indeed, and if he's really free, then we should treat him that way. What Paul is doing here, it's amazing. He's taking the individual good news of salvation through faith, of salvation from sin and judgment of hell, and he's expanding it to include our relationships with other people. He's saying, if I'm your father, I'm his father, then you two have to start living like brothers. See, because relationships are reconciled when all of us pursue God together. When we put our preferences aside and we make pursuing Christ the priority, relationships reconcile. Read this quote recently. It says, A gospel that provides reconciliation between God and man, but not between man and man, is not the true gospel. 
In other words, if your Christianity makes things right with God but not with your neighbor, you haven't gotten the whole thing yet. Following Jesus is all about restoring our relationships that have been broken. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam sinned and Adam fell from relationship with God. It wasn't just his relationship with God that was broken that day when he sinned. He had a broken relationship with his wife. He had a broken relationship with the creation around him that was now cursed and wouldn't produce for him. He had a broken relationship within himself and his own heart and his own, his own spirit. Everything became broken and the gospel is all about Jesus restoring everything that was broken in Genesis chapter 3. So if the gospel is about everything being restored, then it's not just about me and God being right anymore. Now it's about me and my brother being right. Now it's about being my neighbor being right. Now it's about my relationship with the creation around me, the world that God has created, that being restored as well. The gospel is about restoring relationships with our creator, with the world around us, with the healing and brokenness internally, and restoring our relationships with fellow man. See, your relationship with Jesus is not just about your relationship with Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus should affect every other relationship in your life. This letter, though, when he's writing, it puts a demand on all three people. It's not like Onesimus is getting off scot-free here. It's not like it's saying, no, what he did was okay, everything's fine. Everyone has something to live up to in this new relationship that's being created. So Onesimus, the slave, there was a demand on you. Paul has stuck his neck out there for you. You must live worthy of the letter that he wrote about you. See, when God forgives you and you repent of your sins and past mistakes, they're washed away. That also means that he's given you the power to live like him. So when you say, I'm a changed man, it means exactly that. And you have to live changed. So he's saying, Onesimus, I'm writing this letter for you, but you better live up to it. You better live up to your name. You better be useful to the people in your life and useful in the relationships that you have. You better walk in repentance and servanthood. Live worthy of your name. There's a demand on Onesimus in this letter. You've got to live up to the things I write about you. There's a demand on Paul. Paul in this totally Christ-like move, he does this amazing thing. He says, I'm sending your slave back to you. I want you to receive him as a brother now and not as a slave. And if he owes anything to you, charge it to my account. I will repay. It reminds me of the Good Samaritan. Remember, Jesus tells that story about the Good Samaritan and, you know, the Pharisees walk by and the priests walk by, the man that's in the ditch, and he's, he's so wounded by, by burglars and vagabonds and stuff. And so the, finally, the Samaritan, who everyone's supposed to hate, and they're supposed to not have a good relationship, the Samaritan comes, and he treats him. He pours oil in his wounds. He gets him a, a, a room in an inn, and he says, take care of him. And if I, if I, he gave him a little, few, little bit of money, and he said, if it, the bill runs up more than what I've given you on my way back, I'll pay the rest of it. Charge it to me. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, I'm sending you your slave back to you. I want you to receive him no longer as a slave, but restored as a brother. And if there's anything in the past that hasn't been dealt with and hasn't been taken care of, charge it to me, Paul says. Guess what? Jesus does the same thing. When Jesus is standing on the sit, or, uh, hanging on the cross and he's saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's saying, hey, God, whatever they're doing, charge it to my account. Whatever's going on, charge it to my account. Now, let me put it another way for you. In our broken relationships, when a brother or when a sister, when a friend, when a neighbor, when just a stranger sins against us, guess what? That sin has already been paid for on the cross. 
Whenever someone wounds you, whenever someone hurts you, whenever someone betrays you, whenever someone comes against you, we don't forgive based on their ability to apologize. We forgive based on the ability that Jesus' blood has already been shed for that sin. The idea being that when you're not forgiving that person, you're really not forgiving Jesus because he took on their sin. He's carrying their sin. You're holding that sin against Jesus now instead of against them because he says, I've already covered that. I've already taken care of that. I've already bled for that sin. So when someone hurts you, betrays you, someone leaves you, God stands in the gap between you and he says, charge it to my account. That means your friend, your neighbor, your family member who sins against you. The blood of Jesus has already paid for what they did. And you might say, I can't forgive, Seth. You don't understand. And you're exactly right. I don't understand. There are things that you've gone through in your life. There are issues in your life that I've never walked through. I've never been able to understand. I'll never be able to fully comprehend what's going on. But here's what I do understand. Harboring unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart for any reason whatsoever is just you simply taking a little little bit of poison every day and it's killing you that person is fine they're out doing whatever they want to do they're living their best life they're doing however they're not worried about you they're not hurt over it but you're sitting there hurt and you're the one that's that's being destroyed by your unforgiveness I want you to hear something forgiveness is not you saying I'm okay with what they did to me That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not a free pass. Forgiveness is not saying, I'm fine what you did with me. That's, That's not what it is. And we've so misunderstand that. Forgiveness is saying, I'm trusting Jesus with your sin. I'm trusting Jesus with what you did. I'm trusting that the same grace he extends to me, he's extending to you. It's releasing them from my personal judgment and trusting Jesus to handle them. To place them into the wounds of Jesus. When you forgive someone, it's like Jesus saying, you know what, charge it to my account. I've got this one. I'll take care of this one. And I promise you I'm a healer. And I promise you I'm a deliverer. And I promise you whatever wound you've got, whatever thing's going on in your life, whatever hurt you're carrying, I'm bigger and I'm a better healer. I I struggled with this for a long time, forgiveness particularly. And, and people will persecute you over this because they think that forgiveness means everything's okay. That does, that's not what it means. See, let's take an extreme example. You've been abused by someone. Statistics say that at least one in four of the people in this room have suffered some sort of abuse in their life. So I'm talking to 25% of the people in the room. An extreme example like that. And you've been struggling with forgiving that. Should I forgive? Can I forgive? How do I forgive? I don't want to forgive. They hurt me. All of that. It's all valid. I understand. I've been there. Forgiveness isn't saying that you trust that person ever again to get that close to you. There is a difference between forgiveness and trust. I'm not saying that you forgive someone and you let them right back in where they were before. That's not what forgiveness is. You draw a line with trust with people. You don't let everyone into your inner circle. You don't let everyone into the most intimate parts of your life. There's a line somewhere there. But forgiveness is just you saying, I'm not responsible for their sin anymore. I'm going to trust Jesus with this sin. And it doesn't even mean you have to like the person. It doesn't even mean you, have, you don't have to accept what they did. It's not about that. And we get so warped about what forgiveness is. And then they'll come at you and they say, I thought you were a Christian. You were going to forgive me. Well, I have. But that doesn't mean that you get to do what you did 
then I'm going to allow you to continue doing that. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is saying, I'm trusting God with your sin. It's releasing them from your judgment and placing them into the wounds of Jesus. Verse 15, Paul writes and he says, Perhaps this is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. He's writing to Philemon. He says, Maybe there was something God was doing here that your servant left for a while, but now you can have him back forever as a brother. It is okay to put distance in certain relationships. And that doesn't even have to be an eternal thing. It is okay to say this is a boundary. It's okay to say we're not going there ever again. So when I talk about restoring broken relationships, it does not mean there isn't boundaries, that you're a doormat. It does not mean that you get to allow people to hurt you continually over and over again. It simply means I'm trusting Jesus with that. And then if we both start following Jesus and we're both going in the right direction, we can end up going in the same place and being in the same place. Does that make sense? Is that, are you all following with that? I know this is a different type of message, but this is so good, and I think this is something that we struggle with a lot in our lives. Sometimes you have to go away to come back better. I'm reminded of, in the Old Testament, Israel. They were delivered from Egypt. They left Egypt, and they're on the run out of slavery, just like Onesimus was. Pharaoh is in hot pursuit of them and his army. They're trapped, the sea in front of them, high rugged mountains on either side. And I love this picture. They entered the Red Sea as slaves, but they came out on the other side as sons. They were transformed by this process of escaping the bondage and finding freedom. And Paul is sending Onesimus back. He says, you were a slave, but you've been through a process. You've been through a baptism. You've been through that Red Sea experience. You're no longer a slave. You're going back as a son and as a brother. We have a letter that was written on our behalf for our sin. This letter took on the form of a man. He was sent from the Father. He was guaranteed. It was sent to guarantee our freedom and our reconciliation. Christ, the Son of God, clothed in the envelope of human flesh, sent from the glory of heaven to the dust of earth. He is our letter of reconciliation. God enveloped in humanity. And on the cross, the seal of that letter was broken as they pierced his hands and his feet, and the spear pierced his side. And love flowed out of that human letter. It's interesting, the scripture calls Christ the word of God. He's a letter sent from God to bring freedom. That envelope was opened on the cross and love flowed from his veins. And go with me to that scene 2,000 years ago. Watch who Christ, the love letter sent from heaven, broken open for you and I to receive freedom. Watch who comes together on that hill together called Calvary. There's the women weeping at his feet, broken and hurt. There's the disciples who remained watching in sorrow. There's the Roman centurion. Maybe he had been the one to nail Christ to the cross. Maybe he'd been the one to put the crown of thorns on his head. Maybe he had gambled over Christ's clothing there on the hill. 
But when the body of Christ, that letter from God, was broken open and he watched love flow from this man as he uttered words of forgiveness as he was being murdered, that Roman centurion eventually was able to confess, surely this man was the Son of God. Who else is on that hill? There's thieves hung on either side. They deserve to be there. They had broken the law. There's the Jewish religious leaders, the religious hypocrites, the self-righteous of the day. All of them come together in the same place at the same time around the same cross. From different political opinions, different home lives, different worldviews, who bitterly hated one another, groups who oppressed one another, but they were all brought together at the foot of the cross. And from the foot of the cross, every other dispute, every preference, every, every offense starts to look different as you watch that love letter being poured out. Paul is doing this amazing thing where he's saying, if you've both been to the cross and experienced Jesus, and you've both experienced salvation, you're brothers now. There's no more of this slave and master. There's no more of this power politics. There's no more of this, I'm in charge and you're not. You both are just beggars looking for bread. It's this amazing picture. Nick's sitting on the far end of the room there. Lisa's over here. Let's pretend they had a disagreement. If they want the cross, they've got to come together. It's possible to be in the same church congregation, even in a smaller church like this. Never talk to somebody that sits on the other side from you. Never have anything to do with them. We're having communion on purpose today. Guess what? You might not like them, but you both got to come to the table. As we pursue Christ together, relationships must be reconciled. 